Morning, church. How's everybody doing? Good. My name is Adam, and I am the associate pastor here, and I have the privilege of continuing us in our series, The Beautiful Church. Um, it wasn't actually supposed to be uh, this, this talk this morning, but um, starting about two weeks ago, as I was praying for us in this morning and saying, God, what do you want to do? I kept getting this, this phrase as I would pray. I'd hear, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead. You ever heard that phrase before? I thought I had, but I wasn't confident. I was like, it sounds kind of cool and catchy to be a cool like tattoo or something. And so I was like, wake up, sleep arise from the dead. I'm like, what is that? So I started praying and then I did like the really spiritual thing and I Googled, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, scripture, enter. And it's a Bible verse. Did you know that? Like that's in the Bible. And what was so encouraging to me was this, that it was literally the next chunk of scripture out of our Ephesians 4 study we've been doing. And I genuinely did not know that. So I'm saying, God, what do you wanna say? What's on your heart? What is God speaking? And I keep hearing this, wake up, sleep, arise from the dead. And I look it up and it's in Ephesians 5. So we're gonna be continuing our series and we're gonna talk about Ephesians 5 this morning because I believe God has a timely, specific word for us as a people. And I mean that with great humility. I believe there's something God is wanting to say today that we have to listen to. We need it. We have to, God has brought revival to this church. I don't know if you are aware of this, and I don't know if every one of you would even agree or say that you're experiencing this, but I believe so much so that I feel like I'm not allowed from the Lord to say that he's gonna bring revival, but I actually felt convicted from the Lord, this is about um, two months ago, that I'm not allowed to say that anymore, that I have to say he's brought revival. We're just in the tremors in the beginning of it but he's increasing revival. Into, and we know that God's moving across our nation. We've heard about Asbury revival and some other things God's doing. Well, I believe God is bringing revival to this house, this specific location. But there's a place and a posture in which we operate from that allows us to agree with the Lord's spirit and not quench or hinder the Lord's spirit. Amen? And so I believe this word for this morning is very specific and timely on how we ought to agree with the Lord so that we don't hinder the revival that God wants to bring. And if you're not experiencing revival, good news is you can start right now. You don't have to wait to another day or another moment of revelation. You can just choose to align yourself and agree with God today and make your heart start beating again if you feel like you've been dying on the inside. God wants to revive people today. And so that's what we're going to do. So go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to Ephesians 5. We're actually going to cheat. We're going to start with Ephesians 4, verse 32, the last verse of Ephesians 4, because it makes sense because you know they, they didn't have verses and chapters when they wrote it. It was a letter from Paul to the church of Ephesus, and so it's just a continuation of thought. But as you're turning there, I do want to give context. This might take a moment, but I want to give context a little bit about the, the, the book of Ephesians. Paul, the apostle, wrote it, and he wrote it to the church in Ephesus, why it's called Ephesians. And this is something you should know. It wasn't Paul as a, just some spiritual leader writing to a church off in the distance that he's familiar with at some level, Paul planted the church in Ephesus. He lived there for two years and three months. He knew these people intimately. They were friends, family, people he did life with. So as he's writing this letter, it's not like generalities. He's writing specific things to a specific church saying, I know your strengths and I know your weaknesses. That's why a lot of this is a corrective book. And I'm telling you, like, respond to the Lord. He's, as a father to this church that he helped plant, he's saying, return to the Lord. And what's so interesting is after Paul had left that church and went on and did other ministries, there's a time when we see in Acts 20 where he's in a city called Miletus. This is where Paul's visiting and he's gathered with, of all people, the elders or leaders of the church of Ephesus. So the, the, chief, the leaders of Ephesus went to Miletus, they met Paul, they're gathered together and Paul gives this kind of chilling and intense 
rebuke or challenge or maybe warning to the church of Ephesus leaders. This is what he says in Acts 20, starting in verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So Paul writes Ephesus, or he plants Ephesus. He leaves after living there many years. He writes them the letter, the book to the Ephesians, the book we have today. And then later on, he meets with the leadership of that church and he's rebuking them. And he's saying, hey, the responsibility to obey the word of the Lord is now on your hands, not on mine. You have to own what you know. You hear what I'm saying? And, and the reason why this, this language is so intense is because Paul was a Pharisee. And that means that he was an expert of the Jewish law. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. He was very familiar with Old Testament scriptures and he'd be very familiar with the prophet uh, Ezekiah. And he would be specifically familiar with this conversation that, uh, or I'm sorry, not Ezekiah, Ezekiel. And he'd be familiar with the conversation that Ezekiel and the Lord had together that we find in Ezekiel 3. I wanna read that to you. This is God talking and rebuking Ezekiel. He says, when I say to, you, to a wicked person, you will surely die and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from the evil ways in order to save their life, that wicked person will die for their sin and I will hold, accountable, I will hold you accountable for their blood. This is God rebuking Ezekiel saying, hey, when I tell you to speak truth to somebody and you don't and they have their demise, it's on you, right? But he says, but if you do warn the wicked person and they do not turn from their wickedness or from their evil ways, they will die from their sin, but you will have saved your life or saved yourself. And so this is now what Paul, knowing that principle, is telling the leaders of Ephesus saying, hey guys, I've lived with you. I've modeled for you the things of Jesus. Now I've written you this massive letter that we now call the book of Ephesians. And I've warned you and I've challenged you and I've given you commands. We're gonna read some of those today in Ephesians 5. And you're not adhering to it. The blood is on your hands for your church. Isn't that intense? And the reason why this is even more intense is 30 years after this warning to the elders of Ephesus, we have Revelation 2. And this is the apostle John, the apostle whom Jesus, whom, uh, Jesus loved. It's like John loves that he's like in with Jesus. And so, but he has this revelation where God tells him to write a bunch of letters to a bunch of different churches and he writes the entire book of Revelation. But in Revelation 2, he's writing specifically on behalf of the Lord to the church of Ephesus, and he's challenging them and he's saying, hey, the Lord speaks. I say, I see that you guys are hard workers. I see that you guys are ones who persevere. I see that you guys don't go grow weary in, in doing some good things, but I hold this one thing against you. You have forgotten your first love. So 30 years after Paul's warning, we can see that the church of Ephesus has failed. Doesn't that bring sobriety? We're reading this book and sometimes we can just open the book of Ephesians or pick, you know, Thessalonians, pick whatever, Thessalonica, pick a church to study about and we can get some good nuggets and say, oh, this is good. But these are real people, real churches like our church that had gathered ground uh, together, adhered to the word of God, said, hey, let's obey this, let's do this together. And some of them chose to continue to walk in the ways of the Lord and some of them didn't. And it's saying here in Revelation 2 that the church of Ephesus actually stopped making Jesus central. And he starts challenging them. And what he's challenging them is he says, you're starting to drink the pollution of your culture and you're diluting your convictions of God's word. 
So you're saying, I really want Jesus, but I want all this other stuff too. And he uses the term lover. You forgot your first love. So it's like cohabitating. Jesus, I'm fully devoted as a spouse to you, but you don't mind if I have a few other girlfriends in here too, do you? And God's like, yeah, I have a problem with that. <laughs> right? Do we do that today, church? Are we going to heed the warning of Paul as we read Ephesians and actually take it seriously, knowing that it's for us as much today as it was for the church of Ephesus then? And are we gonna say, wow, like, this is a real book written to real people and it has real consequence. Do we wanna align ourselves with the warning of the Lord or do we ignore it and may it not be 30 years from now, they say, dear Antioch Phoenix, I have this one thing against you. You have forgotten your first love. Oh, may it not be. May it not be of us. Amen? Amen. Yeah. All right. That gives you some context, right? And that's why we read the book of Ephesians. <laughs> but there's a warning here. So what we're going to do is we're going to read through Ephesians starting in 4, verse 32, and we're going to read through verse 20 of Ephesians 5. So it's a lot of scripture, so hang in there with me. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other just as Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ, God, Christ loved us and forgave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you, are once, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and in truth, and find out what pleases the Lord." Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray for a second. God, we don't take your word lightly. And where we do, we repent. But God, we want to be not just hearers, but doers. We want to be responders. We want to be those who don't just get emotionally moved by your word, but we want to be those who apply it wholeheartedly. So Spirit of God, would you come? Would you give us a grace that's not our own to not just say yes and amen with our, with our lips or even with our good intentions, but with our whole lives, we surrender to your word. Come have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to walk through this and we're going to learn this together, okay? So starting in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 32, says this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, 
Forgive each other just as Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The part that jumps out at me when I read this is it says, for God, follow God's example. Can you say this with me? I want you to repeat this with me. You say, Jesus is our standard and God is our example. Jesus is our standard and God is our example. When Jesus came to this earth, yes, he was God, but he was fully man and he had every limitation that you and I have. So what he didn't do is he just didn't come as God bringing victory over sin and death, but he came as a perfect man modeling what humanity should look like. Jesus is our example. Like we look at him, he's our standard. He's like, this is how we ought to live. And God says right here, follow my example. And what is his example? It's the way of love. Love. The problem that I'm already having when I'm reading this is that our society has decided to redefine the word love. He also is our truth. And unfortunately, our society has also tried to redefine the word truth. Or they've made it plural where there's multiple truths. And the reason why that's a lie isn't because Adam is telling you, and I, I, it's not my wisdom, it's because this book tells me that Jesus says God is love. He is the complete fulfillment, embodiment of love. It's not an attribute that he possesses, he is the very definition of it, right? right? And it also says that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he is truth. So what he defines as true and what he defines as love is what it is not what we want to modify it to be convenient. You know, we'd say to be agreeable with somebody is to being loving. But we're about to read, as we just did briefly, a list of sins, and for us to say, oh, I just need to be agreeable with someone who's destroying their own life is not me being loving. Do you hear what I'm saying? So the way and the motivation of God, if we follow his example, is love. But we have to realize that our definition might be a bit perverted if we've been drinking the Kool-Aid of our culture on what love really is, right? And so there has to be a sobriety of saying, God, teach me what love is. Teach me what truth is. And, and he gives examples. He says, be kind and compassionate. So it is being kind, being rude, being impatient, thinking of yourself higher than someone else. That's not love. So for us to be judgmental towards the world, the people, not the actions, is sin. So we can't, I'm not a judge, he's the judge. I'm not the judge. But I do have to be able to be agreeable with him and love to say, if he says, don't do X, Y, and Z, it's gonna destroy your life, I have to say, yeah, don't do X, Y, and Z, it's gonna destroy your life. Because he is love and truth, right? That doesn't mean I'm demonizing the person, it's because I love the person and I'm following God's example. Does this make sense? So be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other. You know how unpopular that is in our culture? Everybody's a victim of everything and they all wanna wear it on their shoulder as a badge. And it really is, it's just a badge of bitterness of like, look how wronged I've been and how I'm not gonna forgive so-and-so. The last three years have been louder than ever with this. And it's not hard to get a bunch of people to rally around you to point fingers and slander somebody in the process, right? But God's example and method of love is forgiveness. One of the greatest muscles a Christian can flex is forgiveness because it's definitely not of this world. 
That is a kingdom muscle because it's not modeled by the world. It's only modeled by the Lord. When Jesus on the cross is dying, it blows my mind that he is in the middle of the suffering. He's in the middle of the assault. And yet he still sees people and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He somehow has room in his heart in the midst of unbelievable pain to still see the person in front of them as a soul worth loving. Can you do that when someone's offending you? Not even, especially in the middle of it. Not after you go and you kind of like nurse your wound and, you know, kind of, I'm being serious. Like it's one thing for like my wife to hurt my feelings and I go and I'm like, I need to go get right with Jesus about this. You know, you hold on, you know, and then I come back and I say, I forgive you, right? But it's in the middle of the conflict that I say, I see you as the daughter of the king, a child who Jesus is worthy to die for. And I'm gonna keep perspective to forgive you and to love you even in the midst of offense. That's not worldly love. That's not how they define it on the news, right? So, wow, already Paul's coming out swinging. And I, and I sensed from the Lord when I, was, when I was reading this portion, a jealousy of God saying it needs to be all-consuming. Like, you can't say, I'll love sometimes, or I'll be an agreement of God's truth sometimes. But he wants all of you, all the time. There's this quote I like from Abraham Cooper. He's a Dutch theologian. And this is what he says. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. Isn't that intense? Like, he's not okay with you saying, well, I'll give you all of this, but this, little, this is mine, God. And he's like, no, I also died for that too. All of it's mine. And so there's this place of submitting and surrendering to in love and in truth, all the things of God, holistically, all of us. Nothing is off the table with the Lord. Let's keep going, Ephesians 5, verse three. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because there are, there are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such as a person who is an adulterer, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That hits hard, doesn't it? Paul does not mince words. He is intense in the way that he is willing to call sin, sin. He's not okay with us trying to massage it, sugarcoat it, justify it. He says, if it's sin, it's sin. If it's wicked, it's wicked. But if it's righteous, it's righteous. And what I've been convicted by, this is what's really stirred and fueled my own personal revival. Since the last summer, so for like the last six to eight months, I have been going through what I would describe as personal revival. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody else. I'm not saying I deserve something more than any of you. I'm just saying my heart is exploding. Like every day. I'm, I'm, every day I'm going, wow, God, you're better than I thought you were yesterday. And you speak to me in more clear ways than I knew you could speak. And you're changing me. That's the proof in the pudding. I'm a different person. My wife will vouch. I'm a different person than I was last summer. Like God is changing me. And I'm going, I, wow. In areas I didn't, I was unaware. I was blind to a lot of things that needed changing. And some of it happens to be specifically around the ability to call sin, sin. If you can't identify it or be honest with what it is, you can't address it. Right? 
And so for me, it started with a series of dreams. I don't know if any of you all had a, a prophetic dream or what I call God dreams, but I had three dreams in one week. Back in October, I had the first dream. And what happened was, is before the dream, I was, it was in the evening and I was watching this documentary on the 2008 men's Olympic basketball team. And I don't know about, if you know any of this, but in 2004, we got our booties kicked and it was bad and it was embarrassing because USA is a basketball nation and we dominate the rest of the world in basketball. But in 2004, we got the bronze medal, which maybe sounds good, but it was like very shaming on all the basketball folks. Okay. So what they immediately did was they said, after the Olympics, they hired a guy named Coach K and they said, Coach K, we need you to coach this team because you're a good coach. You need to help us. And he says, I'll do it, but I want to coach all four years leading to the 2008 Olympics. I don't want to just get them three to six months before the game. And they're like, okay. So they gathered together this incredible team of some of the best athletes in the world in basketball. And he begins doing these 35 day intensives in Las Vegas where they meet for 35 days at a time and they practice, practice, practice. Well, 2006, they do this for two years. In 2006, it's time for one of the trials. And so they go out to try to get into the Olympics and they lose. The US team doesn't even make it into the Olympics in 2006 because we lost. It was so embarrassing. So Coach K's like, oh my goodness, what do I do? And so he's like, I think we need one more player. He's like, we need like a more experienced, more like a general kind of basketball player. So he goes and he asks Kobe Bryant, will you play on our team? And Kobe Bryant agrees to it. And they said the very first practice at one of these 35-day intensives, they literally just start the practice and Kobe gets the ball and he immediately goes in underneath the, the basket and he checks the center, causing him to fly across the court. Like just real physical, just boom, hits him. He goes flying and then Kobe makes the shot and then runs down to play defense. And everybody's like, what are you, man, we're just scrimmage. It's just a practice. Goes, no, no, I always play to win. And they're like, okay. And then a few plays later, Kobe dives across a fold-up table that's on the, on the side of the court. He dives across it to try to save a ball from going out of bounds, sacrificing himself for a scrimmage like really physical play and saves the ball. And they're like, Kobe, you need to, you need to calm down, man. He goes, no, no, I, I play to win. And they're like, man, this guy's nuts. And so they go on and they keep playing and he keeps practicing with them. Well, they do so much better just with the presence of him that in 2007, they get one more chance to make the Olympics at another trials and they win. And everybody goes crazy. They go out partying that very night. They go into Las Vegas. It's 4.30 in the morning. They come back to the hotel to finally go to sleep. They go to hit the button on the elevator, but the doors open up before they do, and it's Kobe Bryant. And he has basketball shorts on, he has a t-shirt, and he's walking out of the elevator, and they're going, Kobe, what, weren't you out with, like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm going, to, I'm going to work out. Like, what are you, it's 4.30 in the morning, we just won yesterday. He goes, I live to win. And he goes, and he goes to the gym, and he starts working out. So they all go to bed. The next day, 4.30 in the morning, Kobe Bryant gets up, goes to the gym, but so does LeBron James. No one tells LeBron James, kid up at 4.30. No one said, hey, this is what the coach wants. He just followed the example of Kobe. The next morning, Carmelo Anthony joined him. By the end of the week, almost the entire team was getting up at 4.30 in the morning to work out and to practice harder just by the example of Kobe Bryant. In 2008, not only did they win the gold, they won by like 32 points. They dominated but it was because someone was willing to step up and say, I live differently. You're connecting the dots, right? It's a pretty obvious example, right? Like there's a call to us to live differently. Well, that night I watched this. I'm being very stirred about like my whole life. Like I'm very philosophical going, what am I living for? You know? <laughs> and I go to bed and that night I have this dream. And in the dream, I'm a fly on the wall of a man named Jimmy Seibert's life. 
And uh, Jimmy Seibert is the president and founder of the Antioch Movement, which our church is a part of. He's the lead pastor of a church in Texas there. Um, a very godly friend and just man. And he's not perfect, and he would tell you that. But in this dream, I'm able to see what his life is like when no one else is around. So I'm seeing him in his quiet times. I'm seeing him in his car as he's driving. I'm seeing him when he's in his office at work. I'm seeing him when he's making dinner in the kitchen. Like when no one else is observing him, I'm seeing what kind of man he really is. And I'm overwhelmed by how holy he is. I wake up in the dream in the middle of the night and I'm going, oh, I wanna be holy. Like I came out of my mouth. Like I started saying this, like she's asleep next to me going, what's wrong with you? you know? But like, I'm sitting there going, oh, I just wanna be holy. I just wanna be holy. And I just started asking God, God, teach me how to live holy. Teach me to have victory in public that first happens in victory in private. When no one is looking, teach me to live righteously so that I can have authority when I am before people and I'm not up here half-heartedly saying something with this big blind spot behind me, but I am transparent before you at all times, God, that you may have your way with me. Guys, you wanna have victory at your work? You wanna have victory in your marriage? You wanna have victory in your family? You wanna have victory at school and your careers? Go get real with Jesus in private. Get victory with God, being transparent, getting holy, meeting with him in powerful ways, and that will give you authority in public. And that's what God wants to do. And so I'm super stirred by this dream. Well, then two nights later, I have another dream. In this dream, I have a pet rattlesnake, as most of us do. <laughs> and I had it, I don't know why I know this detail, but I had it for eight years. And I love this pet rattlesnake, but the problem was I never touched it because it's a rattlesnake. And so it just stayed in this cage and I'm like, oh, I want this rattlesnake, but I can't touch it. So then I have this genius idea. I'm thinking, you know what? I bet it's comfortable with me. I've had it for eight years. It knows me. I go up and touch the glass or whatever. I'm like, you know, you know I, I totally should try to hold this thing, right? And I'm like, well, maybe I won't just go right on and hold it. But what I'll do is I will get, I'll get a dog kennel. I'll get a big one, like an eight foot by eight foot dog kennel. And I'll put it in there and then I'll get in with it. And it can be on that side. What, this is a great idea. And, and I, I'll, be on that side. I'll be on this side. And so I can kind of be close to it, but like, you know, it gives us some space. And so I begin, you know, getting the snake in there and then I get in there and I grab a blanket and a pillow and I'm like laying on one side and it's on the far side. And, you know, then it's kind of looking at me and I'm kind of looking at it and it comes close and it kind of goes away. Well, but eventually I fall asleep in my dream. I fall asleep. Well, when I wake up, all of a sudden this snake isn't on the other side of the kennel, but it is now on me wrapped around my neck and I feel its fangs open and touching the back of my neck. And immediately I go, what have I done? I regret this decision and I wake up. <laughs> and then when I wake up, I hear the Lord speak audibly to me. And he says, I'm gonna read it because I don't wanna mess it up. He says this, do you think you can have pet sins and compromises in your life and it won't bite you? And I go, oh God. What things have I been just so comfortable with in my life that I'm just used to being close to it? I even want to hold it even more, maybe even embrace it at another level. And God's saying, do you not know that will destroy your life? And in that bed, I, just, I, like, I was like in cold sweats. I woke up like shaking and the presence of God is in our room and I'm going, God, I repent of anything I can think. And I just started repenting of anything that I knew was just compromise. And this started creating change in our lives. Like even, and so, so there's a place of maturity here, guys. It can't just be sin and not sin. That's low bar Christianity, okay? There has to be a place of, does it numb me for the Lord or does it give me an impassioned, aggressive nature towards the Lord? There has to be a, a greater disparity than just sin or not sin. That's, that sin and not sin is like one-on-one, kiddie pool stuff. 
And God's saying, I want you to grow up and say, Paul writes it this way, we are called to run the race as if to receive the prize. So the question isn't, you know, is it bad or not? The question is, does it help me run or not? Or is it a hindrance? That's why he says, throw off every sin and hindrance that keeps you from the things of God. So there's good things that are hindrances if they're not giving you an all-out yes towards Jesus. So I'm going, Lord, for, I forgive, forgive me of everything I've done. Like, I want to be free, Lord. And I, so we like, you can do whatever you want. But like, we got rid of Netflix because I found I was numbing out at night on Netflix. I would come home and I would be exhausted or I'd have a, maybe a hard day. And instead of learning how to cope with God or with my family in, in ways that were healthy, I would just numb out and start watching stuff and hours would pass and I would just miss most of my life. And nothing got healed in me from what I was numbing myself from. And it just was this coping mechanism. And I was going, oh, I don't think that's what God wants me to do. There's good stuff on Netflix. It's not all bad. Don't take that too far. But you get what I'm saying, right? And so we, we got rid of that. And then we got rid of Hulu. I think we had that one too. And we just started like changing our lives saying, I don't want to be numb towards the voice of the Lord, right? So then three days later, I have another dream. And in this dream, um, it, for the, if there's children in the room, I, I want to say this really delicately, but there was... Um, it was a, I was in a house and it was wide open and there was all these different like layers of platforms so you could kind of see everybody and there was about 50 people in this room and no one was dressed and they were all doing sexual acts. So you can figure out what I'm trying to say, right? And it was grotesque and it was intense and it was overwhelming. And it literally, it's like when I woke in my dream, I literally just like opened my eyes and I was in this room and I'm going, what am I? And I start covering my face. And I'm sitting in this chair against the wall and I'm going, God, I, I'm talking out loud in my dream going, God, why am I here? I don't want to be here. And I look up and, oh, no, Lord, can you make this go away? I don't want to see any of this. Oh, no. And, and every time I look up, they still would be doing it. And people were proud of what they were doing and they were ashamed of me for not participating. People were looking at me going, what is wrong with you? Like join in. They were frustrated with me because they thought, man, he's just missing it. He just isn't getting, he's missing out on this whole fullness of life thing that we're experiencing as he's sitting over there in this chair, hiding his face. And I'm sitting there going, no, but I don't, they're missing. I'm not, they're, they're wrong. And I had to like convince myself, like, no, this is wicked. This is evil. And I kept hiding my face. And then one of the times when I went to hide my face, all of a sudden I had a Bible in my hand and I didn't need to have it prior. It was always my hands. And all of a sudden I had a Bible in my hand and I went. I literally hid my face in the Bible as I sat here in this, church, uh, in this big room full of people doing horrible sexual sin. And I'm going, no, 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 I don't want to see this. And I said, God, what do I do? And after I said that, I heard the audible voice of God in my dream speak out like a thunder over the room. I mean, it was like shaking the room. It's this deep voice. And this is what God said. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on this law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever they do prospers. And I woke up. That week changed my life. That is where I feel like this personal revival has just gone to a whole nother level. Because I started just saying, God, I want to be consecrated. Do you know what consecrated means? It means to be set apart. It means to be holy as he is holy. It's saying if anything is deluding me, not even sin or not sin, but numbing me for the things of God, I want to get rid of it. I want to be pure and righteous because it's not just so that I look good or be legalistic or sit in my ivory towers if I'm better than somebody else. It's because I get more of Jesus. 
Do you hear me? We get more of Jesus when we say no to junk. And that's why it's worth it. And so God started stirring me and he's like, come on. And so I started just finding myself saying stuff like, man, a powerful life is a repentant life. And we have to realize that repentance is a gift. It's the kindness of the Holy Spirit saying, I'm speaking to you right now. Don't do this, do this. This is better for you. That's gonna hurt you. It's his love motivated as we just read about his example being love. He's saying, don't do this, come, come this way. And so a powerful church is a repentant church. We need to be proud to be a people who repent to one another. And we should not shame each other for our sins. You hear me? If you're a sinner, welcome. <laughs> welcome to human existence and welcome to Antioch. It, it drives me crazy when people are like, oh, like hypocrisy in the church or church hurt. First of all, accountability to sin is not church hurt. You need to know this. Being held accountable to sin is not church hurt. We can do things wrong. We can be rude or mean or not be motivated by love that we talked about. That's not following Christ's example and that's wrong. And that is church hurt and we need to repent as the church. But accountability to sin is righteousness. And so we wanna do that. And then also I just started feeling God just saying, man, like I, I want this church to be obedient. Like a powerful life is an obedient life. So a powerful church is an obedient church but we can't judge or shame each other. We got to champion each other in righteousness. It's like, it's like going to the gym and being upset because people are out of shape there. You're like, it's disgusting. Have you been there? <laughs> All these people are overweight and they're slobs and they're eating chicken on the treadmill and it's just gross, <laughs> right? No, you can't shame people for going to the gym when they're healthy. They go to the gym because they are unhealthy. So don't judge and shame one another because we have sin when we come to the church. We come to the church to get healthy. That's why we're here, we need each other, right? Amen. And so there's this challenge for us to say, man, I wanna get healthy with you. I, but in love, I'm gonna hold your feet to the fire of what sin and isn't sin. Not because I'm shaming you, because I want you to have victory because I care about you. How cruel of it is the church if we can't call sin, sin? For the sake of time, we're gonna keep going. Verse six in Ephesians five. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And I love this, read this. And find out what pleases the Lord. Oh, that's a worthwhile meditation. If you wanna know how to spend your time with Jesus tomorrow, say, God, teach me what pleases you and then do it. Oh, that, that's, I just love that verse. Find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. In Jesus' ministry, at one point he says, I am the light of the world, Jesus speaking. But then later on, he actually transitions and he says, no, because you've received the gospel message, you received my word, you are the light of the world. And then he starts challenging the church not to hide it under a basket, which is maybe a funny imagery, but imagine a light bulb and you put something completely over it that conceals the light from shining. He's like, what good is it? I've given you, I've given you my light so that you might be light to a dark world. But if the church isn't clear or convicted of what truth and not truth is, what sin or what righteousness are, then how are we supposed to be able to be a light to the world around us? How are we supposed to be bright? And we're not supposed to just be 
light in the context of like, oh, we're just really nice people. It means sometimes we have to speak up against society saying that is wicked. We don't agree with that because the word of God says something other. There has to be courage in the church. And I'm telling you, this is hard because our society has gotten very loud the last number of years. And it's got, and the church sadly has been too quiet. So even if I went and just discussed, like even from the pulpit, let me say this, from the pulpit, it is hard to talk about this. And that shouldn't be the case. I shouldn't be nervous or intimidated to tell you gospel truth. I should be able to read the Bible and just say, that's what it says and we're gonna do it, right? But yet, the, the, but culture has been so noisy that even that you feel like this level of intimidation. And, and, and as a Christian, you should be able to be that way everywhere you go, in your family, at your home, even at your workplace. We should be Christians everywhere. We don't put our Christian badge off when we step into certain buildings, Right? But this is the reality. We get intimidated to, to speak truth and we're going, oh, I don't even know. And if I was just to go through the list of the things that was just written in verse three through five in public, oh man, I'd be such a, a heretic or such a jerk or such a, I don't know what you call me, it's just an evil person. It says no hint of sexual immorality. So for me to be able to say like homosexuality is a sin or transgender is a sin or people, um, married that aren't a male and a female, that's outside of God's design. Or for me to say two Christians that live together but aren't married but act as if they are, that's sin. Or abortion is sin. Pick a hot topic, right? Like, it's like, I can't say these things because I'm gonna be demonized because the church has been quiet for so long. You know, there's a, there's a phrase for that. It's called the spiral of silence. And it was written by a woman who was a German sociologist. Her name was Elizabeth Noel Newman, and it was her observations of World War II. So she was a German, she was looking back at what happened with the Holocaust and with the Nazis, and she said, wow. And what they discovered was, most historians believe this, and theologians, is that the actual Holocaust would not have happened if the church had spoken up. Can you believe that? The German church was quiet and therefore, Holocaust happened. We need to be a light in our world. It is to prevent darkness from overcoming the world. We have to be clear and true and loving when we do it. We don't judge people. We don't shame people. We love people, but we reject sin and sinful ideologies. You hear me? This is important. And so the spiral of silence says this. When evil or wickedness is loud and it is not confronted with a loud righteousness, it actually strengthens the darkness. The wickedness gets stronger. So in 1932, the church started getting oppressed by its government, which started becoming more uh, communistic and more socialist and more um, Nazi over time. But the war wasn't until 1941 through 45. So they had eight or nine years where the church could start saying, hey, that's not right. Hey, don't do that. And th but they didn't. And they kept giving their authority away to the government. We're gonna be quiet and we're just gonna let society and the government dictate what we do. We're not gonna say anything. We're not gonna say anything. And eventually got so far that too much power had been given to the government and they'd given away all, they usurped all their authority to where now they had no, no ground to stand on because they'd been quiet for too long. And the sad reality is this is horrible, but there are, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've read multiple accounts where there's church services where trains are going by full of Jews on the way to execution and they, they to out, to over not hear the cries of all the Jews, they would sing their hymns louder. What are we doing in here if it's not changing out there? 
I don't care what kind of worship set we have if it's not producing transformation in us that loves the world around us with the light of God. Like that's why we meet in here. Like it's not just to feel better about ourselves. There has to be a church that is willing to be a light like a city on a hill and says, look, this is the way of the Lord. Not in our perfection, but in our great dependence on a good God. Ephesians 5.14. So this is what is said. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. We are wanting and believing that God has brought revival. But if we are compromised we will quench and hurt the very revival God wants to bring. We have to be clear and we have to be convinced and we have to be obedient to it. We can't say, Lord, I really, really want revival, but you know, don't tell me how to spend my money. <laughs> right? That feels very personal to me. I don't know if that felt personal to you. But one of the lists that he actually gives is greed. And the Lord says, you can't have two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And God doesn't hate money and money's a great resource and this isn't a talk on money, but there's a place where if you want revival, you can't have God plus something. You have to say, God, you are sovereign over all things. There's not something in my life that you aren't declaring mine over, right? Or Lord, you know, I really, really want revival. Don't tell me how to treat my wife or my, my husband. Don't tell me that I have to serve my wife as Jesus laid down his life for the church. Or wives, don't tell me I have to respect and be submissive and humble towards my husband and be patient with him as he's being a knucklehead, which we know men do, right? If you want revival, it's gotta start in all areas of your life. It's like, God, just come and just, I'm gonna agree with you and not with myself anymore. Or Lord, I really want revival, but don't tell me I have to forgive that person because that hurt. You don't understand, God, how bad that, and he's like, trust me, I completely understand what betrayal feels like what unfaithfulness feels like, what hurt feels like, what slander feels like. I understand what that feels like. And yet, even on the cross, I was willing to forgive. We won't get the breakthrough that God's wanting to bring us if we aren't coming back and aligning ourselves time and time again with this. I say this probably every time I preach, but Christians are leaky people. We, we lose vision, we lose conviction, we lose clarity on what truth is or not. We just, it's like, it's like we have a hole in us sometimes. It just keeps, so we have to time and time again say, God, fill me up again with this. Stir my affections again for the truth. Help me be one who stands on solid ground and not sinking sand. So when the world wants to come and be so noisy, I'm stuck standing and not just crashed over by the world's noises. And it finishes in Ephesians 5, verse 18. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs for the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God, the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, drunkenness is sin, for the record, and it is saying that, but it's actually the, the principle of what he's speaking here is more the spirit of it. It's saying, don't get drunk on the world, be filled with the Spirit. It's not just like, don't, get, don't drink alcohol. He's saying, no, like, don't go drink the Kool-Aid of society and think that's gonna lead you to righteousness, but come get filled with the spirit, which leads to life. And if you wanna study that, go study Romans eight. 
And it's a whole passage on what the spirit of, uh, of, of sin does and how it leads to death, but the spirit of God leads to life and life abundantly and life to the full. And so there's this idea of saying, don't, don't just accept all this stuff. Start ex- going to the word of God and let's rally together as the, as the church and let's, let's champion one another for righteousness. And if you're struggling with sin, it's okay. Like nobody's mad at you. God's not mad at you. He's longing to embrace you and say, let me deal with that. Let me help you out of that. Uh, you were made to be a light. You are no longer darkness. That's what it said. You were, it called you darkness. It called us darkness. Not like we were in the dark. We, we embodied darkness. He said, but when I stepped in and I saved your soul, I gave you light. So go live as the light. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it even challenges, it says that the, the Lord's going to return someday. And I don't know if you know this, but God's coming back. Okay. And it says, for those in darkness, he's gonna be like a thief in the night. They're gonna be totally caught off guard going, we're being robbed in an instant. But then he says after that, in verse three, he says, but you are not those in darkness and you will not be caught off guard for you will know the times are coming. We will be aware. But my question is, will we be aware? Are we the church with a basket over our head? Are we one saying, no, I'm gonna be attentive to the things of God. I'm gonna be sensitive in my spirit. I'm gonna repent of sin and I'm gonna call sin for what it is. And I'm gonna be one who speaks out boldly to the world around me that Jesus is Lord. This is the desire and the heart of God. And I believe this is the very thing he wants us to address so we can usher in the fullness of revival that he's bringing to our church. But it can't be just for one or two of us. It has to be for all of us. The blood is no longer on Paul's hands. It's on ours. We are now accountable for what we do with the truth we just received. And there's a sobriety to say, God, may I be humble. May I be repentant. And may I be a responder to your word today that I not just hear, but actually do what you have to say. Will you stand with me? I want to end with one more quote. There's an A.W. Tozer quote that says this. Here's what grieves me. And I believe this also grieves the Holy Spirit. My hearers rise to this call emotionally, but they will not conform to it by a corresponding change in the way of life. Their goodness is like the morning clouds. By nine o'clock, the sun has burnt off the fog. This is what happens to many people's good intentions. They rise emotionally to an urgent message that we become a New Testament church, that we become a model church, that we have the order of the New Testament and the power of the Holy Spirit in order that we might worship, work, and witness. Emotionally, they rise to it, but they will not conform their emotions by corresponding change in the way of life. May it not be said of us. Don't be stirred up by emotions right now. Be stirred by the Holy Spirit. And don't just say, oh, that's a good word, amen. But respond to it and say, God, what needs to be removed from me? What areas do you wanna come and fill me? What areas do I, what, that I've been numbing myself out and saying, oh, this, it's okay, it's this rattlesnake in my life, that's not a big deal, and it's going to bite you, right? There's this place of cleaning house that God wants to do in us as a people. And my plea is that it won't just be a few of us, but it's all of us together. All of us together saying, let's be a light like a city on a hill for the world to see which way is Jesus. And it's because we're walking in that direction together. Amen? I wanna invite our ministry team forward. And what we're gonna do is we're just gonna have the band lead us in a song. This is a time of response. This is the most important part of the day. 
It's not just hearing something, but it's responding to it. And for some of you, your response might be to make a phone call and call somebody and repent for something. It might be going to somebody in this room and repenting to somebody in this room or confessing something to somebody. It might be coming up and getting prayer with different prayer people. For a lot of us, it might be physically coming, getting on our knees in a place of surrender again, saying, God, you're sovereign over everything. There's not anything in my life that I wanna say it's mine, but God, it's yours. Like, what is the place of response for you? But my prayer is that you do business with Jesus today. There's no reason for us to carry any more junk that we brought in out because God has given us freedom from it. There's a grace for it today. We asked for it and he's given it. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna respond. So Lord, come have your way. Jesus, come and do business with us. Come bring conviction and stir our affections, Jesus. God, I pray where anyway our motivation isn't love, that we would repent for that right now in Jesus' name. Where we've abused truth as a way to manipulate or gaslight somebody or, 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 or you know, change a narrative. Anyway, we, we've been a manipulative people, we repent of that. But our motivation, God, needs to be love because that's your example. Jesus is our, our, our standard and God is our example and we wanna be motivated by love in Jesus' name. And God, where sin has come in, rather it's some sort of impurity and sexuality or if it's um, greed or idolatry or vain imagination. Lord, you know what it is. You know if it's pornography, if it's uh, addiction, some form of addiction. God, I, I pray that today would be the day that'd be broken off in Jesus' name. God, I release captives into freedom right now in Jesus' name. God, that you'd break off drug addiction and sex addiction and, and alcoholism and, and, and shopping addiction and, 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 and perversion with money and um, uh, even social media addiction where we keep streaming to find our identity by other people's pictures. God, we break that, that bondage off, that, that, that lie. We break it off in Jesus' name. We call it what it is, it's sin, because we're choosing something other than you. We have a, we've chosen another lover. May we not follow the, follow the way of Ephesus in Jesus' name. May 30 years from now be that we are a church beaming with the light of God, seeing lost saved and those who were hurt restored and those who were broken made whole. God, may this be a city on a hill in Jesus' name. And God, where we've been silenced by the noise of our culture or by our jobs or our bosses or even family members or friends, where we feel like we are peer pressured into being silent and putting a basket over the light that you've called us to carry. God, I break that off in Jesus' name. And I ask that your church would be a courageous church. May we be a courageous church who speaks truth in love, but we still speak it nonetheless because when silence comes from the church, the darkness gets louder and stronger and we wanna push back the devil in Jesus' name. So God, come and embolden us, come move in us, we pray. And we all said in Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the Lord right now.